Hey guys, it's Luke. You know what's about to happen, right? Yes, indeed. We can't put anything past you guys. It is another edition of Livewire Radio, and this is a very special edition of the show. It's our Monsters, Monsters, Monsters of Public Radio edition. We put that reverb on there so you'll get really excited about our guests. But we don't really need the reverb this week because we have some of the legends of public radio coming your way, including Ira Glass of This American Life, who will tell us why it is he went to canine culinary school. I spend two or three hours a week um, cooking food for a dog. Jad Abumrod and Robert Krolwich from Radiolab tell you what happened the first time Jad gave Robert something to read. You tore it up and then spat it at me. <laughs> and the biggest public radio monster of them all, Garrison Keeler from A Prairie Home Companion, says something that his millions of fans might take issue with. I am misplaced as the host of a show. I've been misplaced for almost 40 years. All that plus music from the amazing Sally Ford and the sound outside. Coming up on this edition of Live Wire Radio. First, though, our conversation with Ira Glass. If you are listening to this right now, you do not need me to explain to you who Ira is. He's the host of This American Life. It's a show that's on over 500 stations around the country. And on This American Life, Ira tends to tackle all kinds of interesting stories, many of them pretty serious. Stories about love, war, personal triumphs. So when I had him on TBTL, I decided I'd get right down to the important stuff right off the bat, which is why we started out talking about yoga. I have done yoga, and and my wife used to be a yoga teacher. I just did it for the first time the other night. My girlfriend made me go. I made her a deal. I said we would either go to couples counseling or we would go to yoga once a week. (laughs) Not both, but one or the other, and she chose (laughs) yoga. And it was the hardest thing and the most emasculating thing. And I have these theories that Maybe it's easier for women. They're more flexible or because it's kind of like there's dance to it because you're in rhythm and you're breathing. I don't know. I was awful at it. Were you any good? No, I was awful. And I've been to many, many yoga classes because my wife was a yoga teacher. So we go to her yoga classes and um, and, and all the men always look terrible. They, it's, it, is, it is a totally emasculating thing. The, the only thing I've ever done that's more emasculating, and I, I don't even know if I should talk about this publicly, but both of my parents had breast cancer. So once a year I have to get... Um, What's it called where they x-ray your breasts? A mammogram. A mammogram. I get a mammogram once a year. And so and so I go into this office and it's all ladies and it's me. And then they squish my man breast in between two plates <laughs> of glass. And and I have to say like every single time it happens, I think this is – okay. Like, <laughs> like, like working in public radio wasn't bad enough. This right. is the most emasculating thing that's ever happened. Oh, my gosh. I, I have to admit that I didn't even – of course it makes sense because guys can get breast cancer that that's something that they could do to a guy but it never occurred to me that that could happen for a man yeah i mean the incidence is still very very rare like like as a man and and even for somebody like me where both of my parents got breast cancer and uh and uh and i carry the gene you know there's this gene Mm -hmm. so you found (laughs) out about the gene or was it just obvious because both of your parents had it when my dad was diagnosed with it, uh, my sisters and I all all were told to get tested, and um and and so so even as a high as and, and I remember like the, there's a special counselor at the University of Chicago like medical center because it's such a good hospital, and 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 like the special counselor like takes you into a room, and um and they brought in these three dimensional props which were like women's breasts to explain the cancer. <laughs> Which is such like a confusing thing if you're a guy, like you're sitting there with like this prop lady's bosom 
and um and 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 then the person got like totally totally serious and i was like well how much greater is my chance of of getting cancer and i can't remember the numbers now because it's been a couple of years but and it was like a lot more than a guy normally has but compared to any woman my chances are still almost none like like as a guy even with the increased risk compared to any woman like my risk is is just a fraction of, of what it would be and i said to them like is this like like normally, don't you have to? Like, isn't isn't this like the least bad news you ever have to give anybody? Like, you know, like 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 you know, to, to be talking to the grief counselor. Like, isn't this kind of like? And they were like, and they were all very like, let me hold your hand. Do you want some tea? You know, do you understand? And I was like, well, first of all, you're not telling me I have cancer, so I'm fine. And you're telling me actually, my risk of cancer is like a fifth of you know my girlfriend's risk of cancer or anyone who I've ever met who's a woman and so I think I'm yeah still but your kind of risk okay. of going to a doctor's office once a year and having your man boobs smushed between a device <laughs> is very high it's almost a hundred percent that is true that so is very true that was really that's why they bring the grief counselors in because for the rest of your life you're gonna have to go through that so when you went to the yoga can we get back to the yoga did you yeah, do please. downward facing dog yes and I have you know um always like kind of thought that I didn't think yoga was a joke. I know that it's a hard workout, but I always thought, well, I could do downward facing dog for an infinite amount of time. turns out it's actually four minutes. Um, and by the, <laughs> by the fifth minute of this hour long class, every time she was saying, let's get back into a vinyasa. I just, I, 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 I was just terrified because I, my arms were just like shaking like crazy, um, my legs were every part of my body was involuntarily shaking from the strain and from being out of shape. And the worst part is I started out in the very back of the class. I picked the spot specifically yeah. so I would be not in anyone's line of vision. And then like two minutes in, she does something about warrior two and everyone turns and I'm at the front of the class <laughs> with a giant mirror in front of me. So it's not even just my back. It's every grimace that I make is now the main thing everyone else is looking at. It yeah. was it was really, really rough, and yeah, downward dog was killing me. Yeah, Ira, when you're when you're at yoga, or if you go to something like yoga, or you go even to the doctor's office, this is the very target rich environment for fans of This American Life and fans of Ira Glass. Um, there's, I would say, a ninety to one hundred percent chance that the people that are doctors like know you from public radio, or the people who are in the yoga class know you from from you know from being Ira Glass does that affect every interaction in those kinds of situations no um I mean my my experience with with my level of fame is that people are unbelievably chill about it and uh and especially in in a yoga class or something um people are really really chill and um and will almost never say anything to me and I can continue with my thought that that I'm an anonymous person I know that I'm not impressing anybody and in fact it's kind of just the opposite and also you know I found out this sort of late I was going to the gym and and I would go to yoga in the same outfit that um, I thought that you work out in and here's what it is it's a t-shirt and and shorts and and some and my wife informed me that's like a, a gym uniform from the year nineteen seventy seven when that's I was exactly still what in I was wearing school. the other night and t-shirts and, and shorts and yeah no no yeah yeah no she's like no no nobody wears that like who wears that you're not in in junior high school gym class anymore but then I just think like I don't want to educate myself what I should be wearing and then here here we moved the radio show to New York City 
And the gym that's the most convenient is the most gay gym I've ever been in. It's called David Barton Gym. and it's Oh, at, they just opened one of those in Seattle. That's the guy, his whole spiel is look good naked, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the gym itself, it's a, it's a beautiful gym, actually, the one that I go to. And um and the lighting is like track lighting and there's club music and and I I am the only I think I might be the only straight man in the gym I'm certainly the only out of shape man <laughs> versus the gym that I used to go to in Chicago, which was like it was it was equally split between like incredibly in shape gay man and like sixty to seventy year old neighborhood guys who had been forced to <laughs> to go to the gym. <laughs> Because it's the like doctor in the their, VA. their cholesterol is too high or something. Yeah, like literally, like the doctor in the VA said, you have to go to the treadmill like three times a week, or you're not my patient anymore. And but they're uh, going to eat a hoagie while they're on the treadmill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like I, at least I was better than you know, like those guys, you know. Um, yeah. But, but at the new gym, it's it's uh it's uh it's not it's not that. Well, I, I want to say um, congratulations on the incredible podcast success of This American Life. I mean, congratulations on just it being a totally amazing radio show and and also a totally amazing podcast. But do you know about how many people you guys pull in on a weekly or a monthly basis just on yes, the podcast? Yes, I do. I do. It's a half million people. Wow. A week? Yeah. Wow, that is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And, and, and uh I mean, we didn't have that many people listening on the radio until our third or fourth year as a radio show. I mean, the radio show is still a lot bigger than the podcast. The radio show is one point eight million a week. Oh um, man! So, so, uh, but, but, but it is it is a lot of people. But I think we might be the biggest podcast in the country. Like, like when you look on the iTunes ratings, we we're always at kind of one number one or two depending on the week. So, so I don't think so. So I think it's a lot of people. But then if you think like that's the biggest one. Like it's a half million. Like that's that's as big as they get. It's, in a way, it's it's sort of modest. In the early early days of this American Life, you came to KUOW and gave us like a session on how to do good radio stories. And it's so funny because it was before the This American Life phenomenon really really took. And I think KUOW was one of the first stations to run you guys, right? Yeah, it was one of the very first. Um, and uh, I, I remember you said something that was so great about tape to tape transitions. This is getting way inside public radio for people, but you know, talking about you always want to have one tape to tape transition in every piece. And then we just like all walked down and got lunch, and we're like chit chatting you and me and Robert Smith and these people. And then you know, five years later, the fact that I've even had a brief conversation with you makes me the biggest celebrity to my friends. That is really really strange because you know, for me, I feel like I have I've had exactly the same job. Like since that day at KUOW, like my life has been exactly the same. Like every day is like the day before where like I come in and try to think of like, what are we going to do this week? It's Groundhog Day. It really is. Like like nothing has changed for me. Um, and, uh, and you know, like, you know, edit the stuff, you know, like do the pledge drive, like, you know, at, put, put, some, put a little music underneath the thing here. Like, like it hasn't, weirdly, like things haven't changed that much. Would you say that it gets mundane sometimes or is it boring or is it something you could do for like, you know, another 25 years? It doesn't get boring. Like, like it's, it's still hard. Right. Weirdly. Um, it's still hard to like think of something good and it's still hard to execute something good in a way, in a way it's like, it's like, it's like poker. Cause there's a lot of like chance involved, you know, like you don't know who's going to turn out to be a good interviewee and you don't know which story is going to come together. And so you just kind of like run on a lot of stuff and wait for luck to, yeah. to kick in. 
and and so and so and so the luck factor really makes it makes it much more much more interesting where, where, where stuff can happen that you really couldn't have guessed and uh and i like that so so i don't know like i don't know 25 years but 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 certainly like i don't i don't i don't get bored at all this is live wire radio i'm your host luke burbank we're playing you an interview with ira glass and we'll be back in just a moment Welcome back to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're playing you an interview right now with Ira Glass, recorded at my home studio in Seattle. Let's Is there in. anything as as I as I let you go? Our our listeners are hungry for they're hungry for the Ira Glass um, dirt, the Ira Glass information. They they have crushes on you, men and women alike. And is there something? Is there anything you can offer them? Is there a, a morsel? Of yourself, of your soul, you can throw to them here at the end. I feel like I've gone out of my way to destroy any crushes with my little story about my man boobs. Only glass. it only enhances it. Is there, <laughs> is there anything else that's sort of would surprise people about? I don't mean to go all Proust questionnaire on it. I spend two or three hours a week um, cooking food for a dog. <laughs> what do you make? Uh, well, it depends. Uh, our dog, a dog, a dog, um, our dog has trouble digesting fat and gets incredibly sick and has pancreatitis and is oh allergic. no, sorry, I shouldn't yeah. be laughing. And uh, no, it's fine. He's fine, sort of. And so for a while, he was eating um, uh, sweet potatoes as the starch and pork tenderloin. Low fat. What? Yeah, no, we're, we're spending like one hundred fifty dollars a week on on pork. For the dog, neither of us eats pork either. Uh, neither me nor Anahid. And and uh, but then we got switched. The pork got switched to uh, tuna, and the sweet potato has been switched to, <laughs> to grits, which which is nice because you don't have to peel the grits. You know, like peeling sweet potatoes is really takes a lot of time. And, and but, but before but why that, do there you was have the, to the, cook it? Don't I mean don't dogs could they just eat raw stuff or is that also bad for them? Oh, because the pork like trichinosis or something? No, nah, apparently trichinosis is the thing of our childhoods and isn't around anymore. Oh but really? Sort of, I mean, don't take my word for it. I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's what I've been told. I'm eating uh, right now a raw <laughs> pork chop, so um, I'm glad right, to you, hear that. <laughs> and um and so and so uh, and so no you we I don't know why we cook it but we're told to cook it we, we, the guy the lady says to cook it and so we cook it and, and and the the worst the worst Luke the worst was when there was a period where he was eating rabbit where rabbit was the food and so we would buy like six or seven rabbits a week for him and then cook wow. them in a slow cooker. My wife's a vegetarian too, so like so like and so there's like six or seven bunnies which look like little bunnies, you know. Yeah. And and then like honestly like. 
then, like, at the point where you're like, where you're going through like, you know, 25, 30 rabbits a month. Well, first of all, incredibly expensive in New York City. Like, I don't know if you've shopped the rabbit market in New York City. I, 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 I managed to avoid that when I lived there. Yeah, weird. So, um, so, uh, so we're buying a lot of rabbit, and um, and uh, we were for for like a half a year, and like at the point where you're like, where you're basically responsible for the slaughter of like. 30 rabbits a month to feed your dog, then you think like, I always used to think about like, like what would this be like from the rabbit's perspective? Right. Like the rabbits right. Would How be sick so, and twisted. Well, the rabbits would be so mad. They'd be like, well, <laughs> like the dog is cute, but he's not cuter than 30 rabbits. You know what right. I mean? Whereas like, if the rabbits were being eaten by, by humans, they'd be okay with it. But it's the indignity of being eaten by a dog that would really piss them off. Well, they'd be like, look, I'll take his job. I'll be the pet. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, how, did, how do you get that gig? You know, like, like yeah. the rabbit, I just felt, so, I always felt so bad for the rabbits. Well, Ira, that is a, um, that is a juicy bit. Uh, what's the dog's name? Piney. Piney. Yeah. My wife had a dream that we had a dog named Piney, so we went out and got a dog. And Can you take him up on the high line? No, you can't take a dog on the High Line. Uh. I live in the neighborhood of the High Line, and 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 and, and all the all the locals hate the High Line. Really, hate it. I'm so surprised by that. I thought that the, I I when I lived there, it was like you know kind of in development. I thought it looked so cool, but it's actually not fun if you live in Chelsea. I, I mean, I don't mind it. Like it's super pretty, and 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 um, I, I remember I remember Anihid was talking to one of our neighbors. And he's like, have you been up to the High Line yet? And she's like, no, I haven't been yet. She's like, have you been? He's like, yeah. She's like, well, is it nice? And he's like, if you like a big garden. <laughs> I'm like, well, who doesn't like thing? a big garden? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, I guess if you don't like a big garden, then, you know, who would like that? A big garden. Oh, so. my gosh. That's great. That's, I, that is a very, seems to be a very New York kind of thing. Like, I liked it how it was. Yeah, I, I, you know, if yeah, if if lush, you know, foliage and a, a, a momentary respite from the 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 clatter of this town is what you like, then yeah, I guess that's for you. The 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 old ladies in the dog park, um, and they're not that old, but the the women who I see in the dog park every night insist that I will never be a real New Yorker as long as I seem to enjoy the High Line, and, and they're <laughs> like, "There's your proof. You're never going to be a real New Yorker." <laughs> Well, Ira, um, seriously, so this is—you've uh, stayed with us much longer than uh, than, okay. than initially uh, promised, and, and I th- appreciate you doing that. And, and good luck with everything. And and maybe we can check back in in uh, you know six months or something and, and hear yeah, how yeah. Uh, sooner, the baby, sooner, and sooner. Piney and everybody's doing. That's great. And and it's a Nama stay to your girlfriend for me. <laughs> All right. All right, Ira. Thank you so much again. That was an interview with Mr. Ira Glass from the daily podcast I do called Too Beautiful to Live. If you want to hear the entire interview, you can check it out over at tbtl.net. Next up, as part of this Livewire TBTL mashup show that we're doing, wherein we talk to some of the giants of public radio, we've got a conversation I recorded with Jad Abumrad and Robert Krolich. Jad and Robert do the amazing program known as Radio Lab, which, if you haven't heard it, manages to blend together science and philosophy and psychology into this incredible public radio burrito, maybe we'll call it, that periodically even folds in upon itself in fascinating ways. I had Jad and Robert by my home studio to chat. I opened the interview by asking them, how Radiolab actually came about. I met Robert not really knowing anything about him. I mean, we could, I could tell you that story. 
But when I eventually heard his work, I became an instant fan. But that was oddly after I'd known him for a long time. Yeah. And, and, and I think the same with you. Yeah, like I didn't we, know you what didn't he did. really understand what I did. We met because, uh, because of a fundraiser, actually. Yes. Or, or a please, oddly a, enough. A, please, a pledge drive. A please drive. Yeah, mm-hmm. we met because of that. Um, I wrote up a little thing, like about this big, like a little paragraph for people to read. And everybody read it as they were instructed. Except for Robert Crowish, I walk in there and I hand it to him, and he's like, "I'm not going to read this." And he, he pretty much—I mean, I don't know what you did exactly, but in my memory, you tore it up and then spat it at me. <laughs> and then he, he was really into the role of a sort of founding father. He no, then went, I, I he went then dumped a hundred tote bags into no, the I, Hudson. My view of this: I went down the escalator to pick him up. He was waiting in the lobby. He'd taken his bike up there, and he looked like, like a messenger guy, you know. I did. And yeah. he had all these he had a little. Sack still of, does a little bit. <laughs> the stylish glasses, but otherwise a, a youthful yeah. face yep. and so, a trim figure that could be from bike riding. So, so yeah. I. I said, so who are you? Thank and, you, by the way. And he said, uh, <laughs> I'm here to record the promo. So then we were talking about the promo. Yeah, we were talking about the promo. You would, and then, see, the thing that was instantly interesting to me about, about Robert was that he, he threw this piece of paper away, and then he, he, he manufactured instantly this much, much better promo that involved all kinds of weird stuff. Like, I remember there was, somehow you worked in, like, a cult of a, a tycoon, an alien abduction, all of these weird things... <laughs> somehow became involved in the spot and then you read it and he performed it in that crazy Robert Krulwich kind of way and I was like wow who is this dude and uh, meanwhile I'm wondering like who is this dude like why is he, like, yeah. what is he doing here and so I say well I'm like so like what do you do he said well I came to New York uh, to, and I worked at WBAI <laughs> that was my first radio job WBAI he said well I worked at WBAI too. and he's like alright that's you know that happens that happens they said, so what did you do after that he said well then I, like, I, I, I then went to the NBR I said, <laughs> <laughs> I after I went to Rolling Stone, but then I went to NPR. So you went to NPR. So I'm, really I'm too, NPR too. That's kind of interesting. Place, where, so you're from? Where? So I'm from Tennessee. I said, well, I'm not from Tennessee. So we, I went to college in Ohio. I said, you went to college in Ohio? What college did you go to? Oberlin I said, College. I went to I Oberlin. I said, this is too weird. Like you're living. I said, you're like what? 25 years younger than me or something? Mm-hmm. So you're like you're like. A, a quarter century after doing the same stuff. It's like an echo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was weird. So I said, well, can you like have breakfast with me and then you tell me what, you, what you're seeing and then I'll tell you what, what I saw. <laughs> just, just, yeah, so we just started having breakfast. Literally like no breakfast. no professional ideas Nothing. We just at, at all. And we had breakfast in this particular place, um, and, you know, like once or twice a month. And you could get migraine headaches from their coffee, which is always Yeah, but we'd always go back to the same place. Yeah. And... Uh, Somewhere along the way, I heard what you were doing. But more importantly, he got this gig at WNYC. They gave him like two hours on Sundays when no one was listening. Mm-hmm. And they said, no you, you go, you no go and you know, put other people's work on. So he put other people's work on. He was like a curator, kind of like a DJ of the spoken word. But he would occasionally sneak in stuff that he did. And one day, he like plays, it gives me, I think it was, uh, must have been the Martian uh, thing? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, I put this thing on. This hadn't really happened to me. Once upon a time, somebody gave me a cassette back in 1976. Uh, it was Ralph Newman. He said, this is my son-in-law's cassette. And I want you to just listen to it. My, my, my stepson's cassette. It was Scott Simon. Uh-huh. And uh, I was at the time the editor at NPR at that. And we were looking for people. And I put this cassette on. This is better than anything we have. Than anybody we have. And I don't even know who this boy is. And I thought, well, I gotta go meet. Scott's his name. He said, "Yes, yeah, Scott Simon." So I 
and then they put Scott on probation for two and a half years <laughs> so, to see whether he would be worthy. You know, and he was really better than anybody they had. So um, Jads was that good in a completely different way. He was just so far ahead of the curve, doing things that were so unusual and so deeply musical. I thought, even though they weren't music per se, that I then look at him and I said, "Wait a second! Instead of me like just yakking with you, I I think." You're better than me. <laughs> My immediate reaction to that is, I, I have to have a piece of you. So I said, let's just do something together. Mm. Yeah. So then we, we didn't know what yeah. it would be, but we did, I said, I, I don't know much, but I know when somebody is parsing and cutting and creating beats that I don't even have in me at all. So we decided we'd do, what was the first? I don't, I don't, it's like, I, it's all a blur at this point. But we I got do up really we, early in the morning. Yeah, before that's anybody why. Because yeah, we would just get up really early and, and like no one was paying attention. And then we would just go into the studio and do stuff and then we, then, then we would take the day off to do our various jobs and then we'd come back and do it in the night. So we just played the far ends of the day because no one then would bother us just to see what we could cook up. So it wasn't funded, no one was in charge of us, no one knew we were doing it, we just did it. Yeah. Then we, we took one of our things First to WNYC and then to Ira. Different little moments. In the case of WNYC, they put us on the air during the program that is usually occupied by fresh air. Mm-hmm. So it aired instead of, uh, what's her face? Yeah. Terry. 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 And the only mail we got was, where's Terry? Mm-hmm. It was like nine of the hundred letters, or, you know, emails. It was, there was a, yeah, there was two flavors, really. There was, where's Terry? And then the other one was like, where's Terry and who the f- there was no that yeah. was there was no wasn't that nice or oh how cool not a bit of it so that was our test meanwhile we go and Iris says we have a program we're doing here I said well, I have this friend now this guy Jad he's like so, you know, we, we could do really amazing things <laughs> oh, so he says uh, so, well we have a two minute hole in our show so can you get two minutes he said yeah two minutes very easy we'll be collecting just little moments so I said okay so Jeff tonight. This is yeah. for This American Life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is yep. first, so the, yeah. one of the first times. So, you know, they were doing that show where they have like a bunch of two-minute pieces and they were like, hey, do something. So we had this piece of archival tape about how to fold, fold the flag. Fold the flag for Flag Day. And it was like, it was a, like a, to fold the flag, we hold the outside, move the water, and fold twice. And it had that little. Beep, dunk. Yeah. They would kind of flip the yeah. page. So it was yeah. a picture book at some point. So, so we took that thing. And we made a sort of radio fantasy of so flag, flag folding. Yeah. <laughs> it was a Freudian slip. And later, <laughs> later you went down to the cuff and did some other stuff. Yeah. But so, this was mostly, the first one was about flag folding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, it was. I would retire now. It was so weird. It was like this weird thing. That I was liked like it. Radio the theater. Like we, were t- we took this thing and enacted all of the little things described by the narrator. So Ira calls Music up and says, and what was that? I said, well, that's our funny flag folding thing. He said, that was really despicable. I think he used like a really strong word. Yeah, so what do you mean like, despicable? This might be what, the what worst thing about? I've ever heard. Yeah, so we had to get out of the shower listening to that. I mean, we, we talked about how bad <laughs> it was. And then Kine, whatever her name is. Uh, Starly Kine. Kine. She goes, you want to kill Fee? I said, kill Fee? So we had, on the one hand, at WNYC, we had, where's yeah. Perry Gross? Perry Gross. On the other hand is, here's your kill Fee. So that was our... Luke, Luke he said, I mean, I'm quoting now, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. You must have been. He loved, I mean, we, he's great, but like, right. that was. At that, that was, moment, though, particularly for you, Jad, because you were yeah, less I mean, established than Robert in this game, as they call it. No one calls it that. Yeah. But maybe they'll start now that, <laughs> now that I did that. Was that totally crushing for you? 
It was. Um, no, I, I told him. I told him. No, but you're different. Attention. You're made right. of different stuff. He he's, know when he's made of strong stuff. If, at the time, I remember I was like, I thought I was mortified. Because, I mean, I never. Ira should be jealous that he, you know, that he can't do Ira, Ira is, is, is certifiably brilliant. And of what course. he's done for radio. And that's why like, if he was to yeah. tell, I mean, if he was to, I have had, uh, I think, maybe two or three pieces spiked by This American Life mm. on the Friday, you know, like hours before they're to air. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's always like, it takes me a lot of self-talk for the following week to like you just not, have to walk around the block not a few feel times. like Ira yeah. Glass thinks I'm lame or something. I mean, yeah. I I, ha- I hold that guy in such high esteem that mm, right, if I, I were if I had submitted something to him and he had said this is despicable, I would be looking for a bridge. So, Ira is like is is I grant you he is the he is the summit. He is the best one that there is. I don't yeah. have any. So it isn't thrilling to have him say you're terrible. On the other hand, there's the possibility, just the possibility that he's wrong. Yeah, but that didn't occur to me for months. Oh, I see. thought he's that this is. I thought it was a is a condemnation of everything I was or ever could be in that moment. Anyway, so there we were. Um, I said, we don't have anything to worry about. Like, this is actually pretty good. And all we have to do is do more. <laughs> so we, we just did. And, yeah. yeah. Well, for Robert, for you, uh, you have been making uh, uh, incredible radio pieces and TV pieces for a long time. Um, how has it been working with Jad? And are, have there been times where you have been thinking to yourself, what the hell is he trying to make me do or talk me into here? Well, most of the time, um, at first it was was a sort of mystery to me. I I knew that it was beautiful or I wouldn't have stuck around. Uh, I also knew that it was was about the music that was inside Jad. So, I mean, this is just a basic thing. So if you grow up in in an era where you have certain machines and certain tunes and certain sounds in your life, things you laughed at, jingles you heard, songs you sang, that's going to be the music in you. So when you make your own music, it's going to be whatever you got in you is going to come out. So when you're in different time zones, you're going to have different music. So that I was willing to accept. There were some things where I just didn't know. Like uh, There were forms of emphasis and stuff where we would take, 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 take a, a word and just double it like that. Or we would go to the store as opposed to go to the store. There was no actual word in English. I would go, go, as far as I know. But we were willing, or some of us were willing to do that. And that took a little gulping. But mostly, I have found it to be sort of an honor, actually. I I realized when I saw my own kids, who really were paying very little attention to what I did, no matter how hard I tried, would actually get up in the middle of a radio or TV story and walk right out of the living room. And when you're a parent, you can't say, please stay, or anything like that. So I was used to uh, being abandoned mid-narrative. <laughs> With uh, Weirdly, when Jad would cut these things, um, they would stay. And that made a huge impression on me. Huh. I was a little guilty that I couldn't do it myself, that I had to be dressed by this guy in order to appeal to my children. Uh, mostly it's been awkward, and sometimes I got angry. And sometimes I, like, I'd kick him, I mean literally hard <laughs> too. And yeah. we would have big fights. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, oh, sure. Do you yeah. remember a specific big fight, like a piece of tape or a <laughs> God, topic? I don't know how, how confessional we need to be. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to get that. here, but we've already we've go, we've gone we've, down that uh, road. I think we need to complete. Yeah, the we journey. know we get into a lot of fights. I mean, we still we've I think we've we've gotten into so many fights early that we don't fight any as much anymore because yeah, we sort of traveled that ground. White heat fights. Yeah, really we've gotten into a lot of fights. Really? Sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. Well, because we were already friends. Like we had already done the breakfast part, so we could fight like people who really knew each other. Yeah. Which is real fighting. 
I mean, that was, it was really, there were moments where he would walk out of the room, I would like, my eyes would well up and think, what the hell am I doing? There was a moment, I remember, I still see the pages of your script, whatever script you're working on that I was trying to edit, fluttering through the air, where you had just taken it, you'd thrown it as hard as you can, and the pages were just kind of fluttering like confetti. (laughs) I remember that image, uh, so salient. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we've we got into some real. But he was an only child, so he had you know he learned to hey. cope with uh, with other people like, <laughs> on his own. And he handled me really well. I mean, he didn't he didn't clunk me as hard as he could have. And thank God. I mean, so, I step back from it now, and I think we were trying to make something that is neither Robert nor Jad, but something yeah. entirely separate and new, and 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 invent something, and. Uh, it took a lot of dragging him to that place, and he took a lot of him dragging me to that place. So, you know, I came in with a lot of interesting notions about how to work with sound and texture and all that, and some storytelling muscles, but I didn't quite have a, a lot of experience there. I feel like just working with him, I've learned so much about that aspect of things, you know, just how to tell a story. If I fuck the edits, just how to actually tell a story. And... uh but when it comes to things like tone and texture and like all that stuff that happens below the narrative, I think you know he's I've he may, I don't want to be presumptuous has learned a lot from me on that level, yeah. Yeah. and uh, but it's been like it's been a migration. Yeah, but it's really it is a there is there are lines here you know that we're on either side of and and uh, and it's a it is a giant trespass in some interestingly wonderful way that that. We're two different age people, you know, and yet I feel so strangely close to Jad. I, I, it's almost like, I don't know, I don't even know what the word is. But mm. whatever that is, it occurred to me that what our show has become, or only we always was, was two people who were sort of coping and, and loving each other, talking about really interesting stuff as we could think of, and struggling with it so it feels a lot like a a warm spot mm-hmm. because it is you know we've we've really worked hard at this and uh and so if it advertises two people deeply curious holding each other's hands if not punching each other out <laughs> while you try to find out real things from 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 pretty tough people to talk to yeah and that's that's a good thing, I think. I, I I can't think of a better place to to end this conversation. That's that's really that's really beautiful. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, radio is so much about, particularly commercial radio, where I've been working recently, is about uh, uh, fake outrage yeah. and pre- people pretending to be buddies. There's this radio show in Seattle where the guys say that they're childhood friends. I guess they went to the same school. I think one of them beat the other one up. I mean, honestly, one bullied the other when they were younger, and then somehow they ended up working in radio together years later. <laughs> it's totally contrived. And, um, you know, David Foster Wallace said, he did this amazing piece about talk radio, and he said that anger is the easiest and least, least authentic emotion to create in the listener. Like, just by saying, look at the toilet paper budget for the governor's mansion, and then you get mad because it sounds like a lot of money. Yeah. But... So to hear you guys talking and to hear two people who have actually – like there's this really big thing, which is Radio Lab, this huge hit radio show podcast. But then there's this friendship between you guys. And not to get hokey, but it's like – it seems like that is equally important, if not more important, than no, the radio a, oh, show. Yeah, it's, Ultimately, it, it's it more, is, important, yeah, yeah. more important. Yeah. yeah. I mean I, I filter everything we're doing through the picture in my mind of those early breakfasts. 
And I think, how can this sound like some weird surrealist version of two guys just having coffee? You know, and you just sort of put it, strain it through that image. And hopefully it sounds like that, and you get the feeling on the other end of that. Because otherwise, I mean, what else, why would you want to put anything else out in the world? You know what I mean? That was Jad Abumrad and Robert Krolwich from Radiolab reminding us all why we do what we do. You can find out more about their incredible show, and you can download it at radiolab.org. I'm Luke Burbank, and you're listening to a special summer edition of Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Ergo Depot. You know, creating a radio show like this one, it takes all kinds of hunching over laptops by our knowledgeable staff while they write this incredible stuff. And maybe even more importantly, it involves a lot of complaining about that hunching over later. But there is hope for our Quasimodo-like employees. That's because Ergo Depot has human-scale chairs and office furniture designed to promote circulation and good posture. More information can be found at www.ergodepot.com. All right, next up on LiveWire, we got a little music for you from a Portland band that is becoming the darling of public radio. Since this is our Monsters of Public Radio edition we're doing, they're called Sally Ford and the Sound Outside, and they've been on NPR's World Cafe, they've been on All Songs Considered, and we would say most importantly, they've been on a little show out of Portland, Oregon, called Livewire. I don't really know why I did a Casey Kasem impression there, but I decided to. Take a listen to this. It's Sally Ford and the Sound Outside, live from the Alberta Rose Theater.
That was Sally Ford and the sound outside with a song from their latest record, Untamed Beast, on this special edition of Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, whose 365 everyday value products run the grocery gamut. From whole grain flours and shade-grown coffees to organic milk and frozen veggies. Everyday values are valuable. Every day. Information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Livewire Radio. Next up on this Monsters, Monsters. I'm sorry. Just getting a little carried away with the Monsters of Public Radio show that we're doing for you. We are bringing you some of our favorite interviews with legends of public radio on this week's Livewire. My name is Luke Burbank. Coming up right now, we've got a conversation with maybe one of the biggest legends in public radio, Mr. Garrison Keeler himself from a Prairie Home Companion. He's been doing the show for 40 years now. It started back in the 1970s in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's been working away faithfully at the behest of our nation's ketchup, buttermilk biscuit, and rhubarb pie consortium ever since. His show now has 4 million listeners on over 600 public radio stations. And recently, Garrison was traveling through Portland, and he sat down at Mississippi Studios with our producer and head writer, Courtney Hameister. Take a listen. Garrison Keeler, welcome to Livewire Special Studio Session. Thank you, Ms. Hamaster. One head writer meets another head writer. <laughs> exactly. Are we going to throw down? Should there be some sort of arm wrestling? or? No, we're here to help each other. Are uh, we? My problem is that I cannot write a Prairie Home Companion until Friday morning. <laughs> I, I struggle with this exact same problem. Why can't I get started on the show on Monday. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming up to 40 years doing this thing, and it still is last minute. But don't you think that, that it's possible that part of the... It's just part of the process for you. It's what you kind of have to do in order to create. You know, it's that idea of, um, uh, you know, s- someone once said, uh, films are never finished, they're just released. It's never going to be as good as it possibly could be, but it's going to be as good as it is for this day. Mm. That's fine for you. You're young, <laughs> and, and it's part of your job to suffer. But I'm old, and, and I don't want to suffer anymore. I want to, I want to have a good time on Saturday night. I just want to feel relaxed and happy and, and without drugs and just go out and do the show and 
and have fun doing it. I think anyone who sees or hears the show would be shocked to hear that you were anything but calm. Let them be shocked. <laughs> um, are you are you nervous every show? Still? It's not a matter of nerves. It's a matter of uh, it's a matter of guilt. It's a matter of of feeling this could be better if I just had dug in on Monday and forced myself to focus. I think I have undiagnosed ADHD, and I come from a time before there was such a term, and so it never was addressed. And, um, and, and, and so here I am, and, and, I, and I do this show, and I enjoy parts of it. I enjoy singing duets with women, and I enjoy some parts of the monologue are, are fun to do. But um, the sketch comedy, that is hard work. And the thing you have to keep telling actors is don't rush. Leave that silence there for the audience to savor that joke, assuming it is a joke. We will soon find out. Um, and, and let the audience imagine. Radio's a, a beautiful thing. It allows us to form close personal relationships with people we will never meet. Well, there is more of an intimacy to radio than there is to television or film. Why do you think that is? Tell me about it, darling. <laughs> I'm not a great radio listener, so so I I can't really I can't really weigh in on this. You I don't love, listen to a lot of radio. I love movies, but I don't love very many of them. And um, and it's a, a rare movie that I really that I really love. What are some that you do love? I used to love a whole class of of British working class dramas in which the camera would stay with a character, say, in the kitchen, and you were in the kitchen with that person for a long period of time. And there wasn't this rapid cutting and jumping. The, the movie invited you in, your imagination in. But the moment this rapid-fire dialogue starts, then, then you are under assault by somebody else's idea of his own brilliance, some other writer. And we writers are intolerant of other writers. You really believe that? Oh, God, yes. And, and, and so you, you think, well, I could have done better than that. I... Just more judgmental. Oh, sure. I was brought up judgmental. <laughs> I was brought up fundamentalist. Oh, Yes. as opposed to Lutheran. We look down on everybody. That's their tagline, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, wouldn't you say that in many ways writing humor is more difficult than writing drama? Well, it, it of course, depends on what you bring to it. But, but it, it is different in the sense that comedy is not an idea. Comedy is an event. And, and if they laugh, then then you've created comedy. And if they don't, then you haven't. You've, right. done, you've done something else. And it really doesn't do you much good to sit around and talk about the nature of it. You just have to go and do it. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's a beautiful uh, democratic realm in which your background doesn't matter. Your education doesn't matter. If you can... If you can 
create things that surprise, delight, horrify people to get this reaction from them, you're, you're on an equal basis with, with anybody else. It's, it's, it's a field which, which, as you know, is, is open to, to any groups and to, and to immigrants and to, and to people who, who 20, 30 years ago might have been considered oppressed or despised, uh, you know, and, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm proud of, of, of that. It's proud to be in, in that bunch of people. Mm-hmm. I have not been oppressed or despised, but they, they let me in anyway. There's still time. Well, thank you. There's absolutely still time. Do your best. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you're about to release your first book of verse. The title is, Oh, What a Luxury, Verses Lyrical, Vulgar, Pathetic, and Profound. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why is this the first time? I mean, I know you've been, you've been writing poetry for a long time. Um, why, why, why now? I do a lot of poetry on a Prairie Home Companion. I don't know why, because I'm an English major, and uh, there are certain things you can do in poetry to, to, to raise ordinary things, you know, up to a, a, a higher level, a false higher level, and uh, and it's and it's and it's playful, and there's something childlike about it. The the title poem, for example. Uh, Oh, what a luxury. Oh, what a luxury it be, how, how ordinary and yet chic, um, to pee, to piss, to take a leak, um, to feel your bladder just go free and open like the mighty mist and all your cares go down the creek, to pee, to piss, to take a leak. Um, you can do that in verse, whereas to do it in dialogue, you know, I really enjoy peeing. Um, just... <laughs> doesn't quite have the same grandeur, you know? It doesn't. No, it doesn't. No. It's interesting because we have sketch comedy on, on our show as well, and we have the conversation quite a bit about sort of the difference between highbrow comedy and lowbrow comedy. Uh-huh. Any time that there's some sort of bodily function mentioned, of course the public radio angels on your shoulder are not so pleased with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say if it is smart, I believe that it's highbrow regardless of what the subject matter is. Do you ever struggle with, with that, with, with being on public radio and, and, and sometimes not being able to say the things that you want to say? No, no, I've never, I've never had that problem, ever. But, you know, I was brought up in a devout home uh, in which so much of popular culture was excluded. And when you grow up in that environment... You become used to it. It's not repressive at all. It's, it's lovely, and life is simplified. And profanity and vulgar language just never occur, so they're not really part of your vocabulary. Um, so, so I'm an odd case when it comes to that. Well, I mean, I think that for the people that I know who, who love your show, it's your monologues that are, are this differentiator that you're talking about, the thing that I, that I think draws more people to it. Um, and these, these stories, um, my, I, I haven't ever seen you um, record a show live, but my understanding is that you tell these stories without notes, without oh, sure. looking at notes. Right. No. Um, and I mean, we have essayists on the show who come and read their stories and we yeah. have storytellers. And the, uh-huh. the great thing about um, having an essayist on is, is that um, 
the story sounds uh, crafted beautifully, mm -hmm. whereas with storytellers, it's a little looser. Your stories come out of your mouth sounding crafted, mm. and yet you're not looking at notes. How does your brain work? It's, it's really very, very simple. You, you, you write your piece um, Friday night or Saturday morning, and you don't worry too much about form, but you, but you have a beginning and a middle and an end, and, and you don't want to write a script. You just want to put it down on paper because this is how a writer thinks, is to put words down. Um, and then, having done that, you put it away, and you don't uh, worry about it, and you don't fuss with it. And when you go out there, and you say, you know, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, and you start, you know, talking a little bit about the weather, and it's been an unusual summer, and stormy, and whatnot, and then maybe you get into gardening a little bit, um, or, or you can pick up anything else of summer. The baseball team is struggling, as always, and um, vacation Bible school, that brings in, you know, certain material that you can always draw on. Um, anything that you've written in the last 24 hours that was really of interest will come back to you. So it's a, it's a, it's a simple sieve, it's a simple self-editing uh, technique. And you just have to push yourself out there on stage, you know, without, without a crutch, without a rope. And, and you can do that. You can do that. Anybody can do that. I think it's very generous of you to say that, but but it is a great skill. I mean, storytelling is is a great skill. I mean, what what for you makes a great story? What makes a great story? Hmm. Um, Abraham taking Isaac up to the top of the hill uh, with a sharp knife in his right hand is a great story. Job. Um, his family wiped out, his herds destroyed, uh, afflicted with boils, sitting in the ashes of his fire, accusing God of, of betraying the bond, the covenant between them, is uh, forever a great story. My story's not that great, but, uh, you know, there's still time. We so appreciate your being here. Just one more question. Um, as, as you know, I stepped on as host um, a few months ago, and Luke Burbank um, is just starting up as host of, of Livewire, and this mm -hmm. is his first radio variety show that he's ever hosted. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for Luke? Oh, I've got all sorts of advice. You know, have fun, but, uh, or impersonate somebody having fun. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, as you, uh, yeah, have fun during certain portions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you yeah. do. But, but if I were there, I would have all sorts of suggestions. I am misplaced as the host of a show. I've been misplaced for almost 40 years. I really am an executive producer. That's where I would really shine. <laughs> a guy in the shadows. Do you, do you honestly believe that? I do, of course. Uh, a guy in the shadows who, who would walk up and tell you with uh, 
an authority born of painful experience, cut that, cut that. Here's, here's the point of your sketch right there. That's your, that's your hot spot. So you feel like that you would be better if you were pulled back from the work and had more perspective on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. But here I am. I'm trapped. You're trapped, yes, in this job. And it's unfortunate that you haven't been successful at it. Well, you know, I've done my, I've done my best. Persistence, you know. Uh-huh. Well, I think yeah. there are millions of people who are glad that you stuck it out. We've been talking to Garrison Keeler. Thank you so much, Garrison. Thank you very much, Ms. Hamaster. That was just a short bit of a much longer interview that Courtney Hameister did with Mr. Garrison Keeler. His first book of poetry, Oh What a Luxury, Verses Lyrical, Vulgar, Pathetic, and Profound, will be released later this fall. If you want to hear the entire interview, please visit our website at livewireradio.org. All right, folks, that wraps up this special summer episode of Live Wire Radio. We'll be back on the air with all new episodes starting on September 14th. And hey, if you're in Portland on September 7th, swing by the Alberta Rose Theater and join us for my maiden voyage as the official host of the show. If you don't come to hear me host, come to listen to these guests. We've got Davey Rothbart from Found Magazine and This American Life. We've got film director Lynn Shelton and music from the incredible Tao of Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. All of that coming up September 7th. Go to livewireradio.org to find out how to get tickets. Thanks so much for listening this week, and we'll talk to you very soon. Our thanks to our guests for this episode, Jad Abumrad, Robert Krolwich, Ira Glass, Garrison Keeler, and Sally Ford and the Sound Outside. To hear the full interviews from the podcast that I do every day, it's called Too Beautiful to Live. You can head over to tbtl.net. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners just like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided in Portland by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. This show is written by Courtney Hameister and by me a little bit. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauk. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Our show theme is written by our house band. Photography for Livewire from Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire, visit livewirereradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And we'll see you real soon.